that through your marvelous work of sending your Son and his dying on the cross, that we can be redeemed, that in our hearts paradise can be regained. Father, that you have set us on a path as believers, that we are going to be in our new home soon, heaven. That we're going to be transformed and glorified. Both in our soul will be perfected and our bodies. Father, we thank you that at that time we'll be able to fellowship perfectly and we'll be able to worship perfectly. And Father, I pray that we might truly look forward to that day, that that would be on our minds often. Help us to not get distracted with what's on it in this world. Help us not to, as John says, to love this world, but to love you and the world to come. Father, I ask that as we look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, that you would give us a glimpse of true worship that's happening there, happening there right now. Uh, Lord, help us to um, just again uh, order our life, re-coordinate, as it were, our life according to biblical truth, that it's this truth that would be setting our path on this earth even right now and, and helping us to uh, change our values, our goals, so that they would be more in line with what you would have for us. So we ask for your wisdom now, your understanding. Uh, we ask that you would convict us in areas that need conviction so that we might um, more fully glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Children may be dismissed. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 4. We've um, been looking at heaven. Looked at hell after the missions conference. Looked at heaven the last few weeks. I thought, you know what? Actually, with an uh, individual left last week and said, you know, what about worship? And I thought, you know what? We should. That's the main priority. Worship. So we want to look at worship. And then I thought during the week, I thought, you know, and we really haven't said anything about the rewards. I think we're going to look at the rewards, the Bema seat, more particular. So next week, not Christmas week, but then uh, New Year's, we're going to be looking at the rewards. What, do we, what should we be looking forward to? But today we're going to be looking at worship. And I would just say it this way. I think it's in your outline, but we have been saved to worship. You were saved to worship, or to say it a different way, the foundation upon which true worship is based is redemption. In other words, God had to redeem us so that he would bring us into a true worshiping situation with him. The Father and the Son has sought to redeem us that we might become worshipers of the true God. Now that's real important. Luke 19 verse 10 says that the Son... A man came into the world to seek and to save what? That which was lost, going astray, doing their own way, as it were. But then John 4 reveals the purpose of his seeking. In other words, he's come to seek, but what is the purpose? John 4.23 says, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now think about this. He's come to save us so that we might be worshipers of the true God. Or to say it another way, 
The primary reason we are redeemed, we are saved, is not so that we might escape hell. I want you to get this. See, in our selfish uh, focus, so often we think, well, that's why Jesus came to save me, simply so that I would not have to be judged, so that he could pour upon me, pour upon us, all the spiritual blessings in him. Well, yeah, those are for sure blessings. I mean, those are for sure benefits. But if you want to really get to why, what is the main purpose? The main purpose of salvation goes right back to worship, glorifying Him. He is transforming us so that we might be true worshipers, that we might worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 said this, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and what? And all these things will be added to you. And the, the, all these things are all the other things of the world. See, it was, talk, it was the context of worrying. Worry, that's the context of the passage. And he's saying, listen, if you, if you just focus on the priorities of seeking His kingdom first and His righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. Unfortunately, sometimes we get our eyes on the other things. See, the other things are not the priority. The other things are, and all these things are just the blessings, but they, they, they do not, um, they're not priority over the worship. Worship is the priority. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 1 verse 5. He said, we proclaim the truth of salvation to you, quote, I want you to catch this, for his name's sake. We're proclaiming the gospel, what, for your name's sake? No, no, for his name's sake. That's why we're here. That's why we're telling you the gospel. That's why we want you to get saved. Because as you get saved, you become a worshiper of the true God. Your heart is transformed. You can give acceptable worship. So you could say it this way. We were created to worship. We were saved to worship. Oh, I would say, no, we were saved to worship the true God. Because the reality is this. We are all worshipers. Like when you walk down the street, or you go to Walmart, and you walk around Walmart, I want you to, next time you walk into Walmart, don't say it, but just notice, every person you see is a worshiper. They're all worshiping. Everyone is worshiping. The question is, are they worshiping the true God? That's the only question. It's not whether or not they're a worshiper, it's whether they are worshiping the true God. There's a lot of idolatry. That is in this world. See, um, in fact, I was reading a book just yesterday, just happened to come across an interesting thought, and he was talking about this whole thing about idolatry, and he said this, bowing down to whatever you believe will bring you what you truly treasure while making making what you truly treasure something you bow down to in in the place of the living God is is the idol. Okay? No, all right. I didn't say that. The point is this. We get a desire. And then we find a God that can meet our desire. That's the point. See, we have gods in our life that are not the true God, and that's what we would call an idol. And by the way, as John Calvin said, our our hearts are like a factory uh, that just keeps producing idols. But the idea is that we have a desire, a lust, I don't mean sensual lust necessarily. I'm saying we have a desire, and now we find a God that can meet that desire. So let me read that one more time in light of that. This is what an idol is. Bowing down to whatever you believe will bring you 
That's the lust. What you truly treasure, see, that's the lust, while making you, making what you truly treasure something you bow down to in, a pl- in the place of the living God. So my lust then becomes the idol, becomes the God, but I have to find an idol to bring me to that point. And, and I, I know I get too deep into this, only to say this, that it's your idols that accomplish your lusts. And what the, the true God does is he, he uh, converts us, transforms us, changes us, redeems us, so that we would no longer be worshiping idols, we would be worshiping him. So we have personal gods that are constantly f- fighting, as it were, against the, the worship of the true God. Or, or to say it this way, money could be an idol, but security is the desire of the lust. Think about that. People get money. And they become workaholics and they're always greedy and they're always wanting more and more. And you say, but what's driving it? Well, it might be the fact of security. It might be the, I want prominence. I want people to respect me. I want people to love me. See, that's the drive. But how do you get there? You've got to have the idol. What is the idol? Money. Now, I'm only bringing these up because, you know, we have to start realizing there's something behind our actions, something driving us. A sensuality can be the idol. Pleasure may be the lust. So you fall into sensuality and immorality because pleasure is what you're looking for. Or perfectionism could be the idol, but acceptance and to be loved and not to be criticized might be the lust, the desire. I've gone past, I mean, down the path, just a, just a little bit. That's all I, just to kind of show you that we are all worshipers. The only question is, are you worshiping the true God? If you uh, quickly want to turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 14, this is a real famous, uh, famous, I say, uh, very familiar passage, at least this one verse, if you have anything to do with idols and lust. But look at verse 3, Ezekiel 14, 3. Keep your hand, by the way, in Revelation. We'll be right back. It says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Idols in their hearts. And notice what they do. And before them, that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. They set up idols, and those idols lead them down the path of iniquity. Now again, I only bring you to that to just, again, cement in your mind we are all worshipers. The only question is, are we worshiping the true God? And what redemption does and salvation does, it brings us to worshiping the true God. And But to do that, he has to do a number of things. First of all, he has to save us. (laughs) He has to declare us righteous. That's justification. And then he sets us on the path of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, which really is this, becoming more and more aware of the idols in my heart, the things that I'm trusting in, the thing that I'm hitching my heart to, And then asking God by the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word to transform me so that my heart and my desire is for the Lord, the true God, and not the other things of this world that satisfy. That's really a major part of sanctification. Now again, on this earth, the sanctification is imperfect. And our bodies are imperfect, but someday... And by the way, our worship is imperfect. Wasn't that, wasn't that unbelievable as far as worship? I, I, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. But you know what? Even that was imperfect. There was these 
things that were competing against true worship in your heart. And yet, because we stand in Christ's righteousness, if indeed you stand in Christ's righteousness, and you say, Lord, I just want my focus to be on you, and I will worship you, then that, that worship was acceptable, though it was not perfect. But someday it will be perfect, and that's when we get to heaven. Your outline has it, and again, this is quick, quick uh, uh, just from last couple of weeks. First of all, heaven is a place for you. It's a home. <laughs> in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And one of the things that we said is this. We have to set our heart on our home. We have to set our heart on heaven. Colossians 3 says, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated. You've got to seek. We've got to, that means there's mental uh, uh, training that's going on here. If, if I'm going to seek or set my affections on things above, like the next verse says, I've got to, I've got to th- that's training. That's mental training. That's like if you want to, you know, like if you want to get strong, you want to go to the gym and, you know, physical training. Well, if you want to be strong spiritually, you've got to have mental training. Seeking the things above. Setting your affections on things above. We've got to train ourselves, train our minds to think about heaven and who is there and what is there. In other words, we're, we're yearning for heaven. That's why many times you find Christians who have gone through deep, deep trials, like a Johnny Erickson Tata. She talks of heaven a lot. Why? Because what's on this earth is not that good. Now, she's married and everything else, but the point is she's been scarred in a way that she's just looking forward to it. Do you think she's looking forward to a new body? So that's our home. And the second thing is heaven is a, a change for you. A change. You're going to have a perfected soul. It's going to be where there's no longer just peace because Jesus said, you know, my peace I leave with you. But there's going to be perfect peace because we're going to be in the presence of the Prince of Peace. And perfect joy unspeakable, uh, unspeakable, and perfect comfort and perfect pleasure, as the scripture says, forevermore. Perfect. And perfect knowledge and perfect understanding. See, now we just see through a glass darkly. It's just, but someday we're going to have understanding. Clear understanding. So we'll have a perfected soul, but then also we'll have a perfected body. Because we were created with soul, spirit, and body, the immaterial and the material, and, and we need to have the, for the completion to happen, we have to not only have a perfected soul, but a perfected body. And as we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies were sown in corruption, it was raised in incorruption, it was sown in dishonor, it was raised in glory, it was sown in weakness, and we have power. We go from natural to spiritual, but the idea is now, now this is why I'm bringing all this up to you. You see what he's doing? He's moving us. Declared righteous. Get to heaven. Perfected soul, perfected body. By the way, now we have perfect fellowship. It says that he will be amongst us. He's going to tabernacle with us. But it's drawing us to Revelation chapter 4. Because now that we've been declared righteous, and now that we have been made righteous, that's glorification, and both soul, spirit, and body. In other words, the material and immaterial are together and they're all perfect. And Revelation 22 verse 4 says they shall see His face. We can actually actually, uh, uh, see Him. You can't see Him now. 
Now we can worship. Now we're, now we're able to worship properly. Perfectly. Okay? Now we can worship perfectly. You know, it's interesting uh, that the Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times. And Paul and Ezekiel actually write descriptions of heaven. In Ezekiel, Paul, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12, third heaven, gives a little bit of description. But if you want a full description of heaven, the, the fullest description that there is, Revelation 4 and 5. So we're going to be looking at that. And unfortunately, we only have about 30 minutes. We're going to try to do two chapters and probably won't get through it all. That's why your outline looks kind of full. But I want you to think about this. Heaven is a place of worship. Not only our home, not only a place of perfection, it's a place of worship. It's a place of worship. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After these things. What things? Well, he had just... This is John writing of our Lord. He's already been uh, revealed in chapter 1. And then he he gives commentary on the the seven churches of the Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. After these things. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. All right, so we know where we're at in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. By the way, what do you mean trumpet? Authoritative. That's what he's getting at. Authoritative. Speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which, you, which must take place after this. After, after the, the time on this earth, just before the tribulation, which is chapter 6. I'm going to show you some things. By the way, this is, again, setting our hearts uh, and setting our affections and setting our thinking and seeking heaven. Let me show you something. This is, this is an important chapter for us to remember and to meditate on. I'm going to show you some things that have happened after this, after this earthly time is passing away. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. Again, John sees the very throne room of God. That's what we're going to be talking about. And I'm just going to break this down into four simple things. First of all, we see the throne. Now again, as we remember, God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. Jesus Christ is in flesh glorified, and the spirit is obviously spirit. By the way, I, I hope, I so hope you were in ABF today. Because they did a wonderful job, Ken did a wonderful job in uh, teaching on the Trinity. And again, you say, well, I don't understand it. Well, no, no. Uh, um, <laughs> we only have finite minds. But boy, I trust that you're going to try to get to ABS because they are going through some wonderful doctrine. And by the way, we're going to be having another class starting up in January. That's, so you're going to have two offerings. But I would hope that if you're committed to ABF, that you wouldn't skip over. I mean, unless you, but that you'd stay committed to uh, going through the, uh, the foundational doctrines of Genesis and actually the Bible. But anyways, the reason I say all that is this is the very throne room of God and, and the throne. Now this throne, as one man said, quote, is not a piece of furniture, but a symbol of God's sovereign rule. So don't think of it like a wooden throne or a golden throne or whatever else. It's more just in the... It, it's the symbol, okay, of God's sovereign rule. And notice it says set, standing, i.e., I think the New, uh, New American says standing. God's sovereign rule is fixed, it's permanent, it's unshakable. That's what he means by a throne set in heaven. It's unshakable. When something is set, you can't move it. What is he saying? God's throne is set. God's authority is set. His sovereignty is set. Nothing's going to move it. Well, I, are you sure that the, uh, 
the, the frustrations in the Middle East can't move it? No. Nothing can move the throne. Again, God is unchanging and is, is, is in complete control of the universe. He's in complete control of the universe. He's in complete control of this world. He is complete control of the United States and even of New York State. <laughs> is he? All right. So this is important to ponder. There's a throne. And then look at the second part. And one who sat on the throne. He sat. Or New American says sitting. By the way, that's not the idea of resting. Like he's not sitting. When Jesus offered redemption and the sacrifice was completed, I think it was in Hebrews. Well, in Colossians, there's actually a number of places. But it says that he sat after he purged our sin, Hebrews 1. But he's not referring to that. Type. He, see, that means that it was done. That's why it, with Christ it means sit, sat, done. But here, sitting refers to, or sat refers to reigning sovereign. He, the, the throne is set, and he is sitting because he is reigning. By the way, in the, um, uh, you know, in, in, um, in uh, that part of the world at this time, the sovereign would always sit. People would walk in. They would kneel. By the way, they would walk in so that their head was never over the head of the king that was sitting on the throne that was a little bit higher. They would always make sure their head would... By the way, if their head wasn't lower, they would lose it. You know, very important. So he's sitting. By the way, who is the he? Again, this is God the Father. Very important. This is not God the Son. This is God the Father. Christ is seen in chapter 5. In fact, we have seen uh, pictures of him sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6.1. It says, In the year uh, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You can see the same thing in 1 Kings 22, if you want to write that down. 1 Kings 22, verse 19, the prophet Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. So here's God the Father sitting at his throne. And notice, and he who sat there was like a jasper. Uh, most commentaries that I read say that that's probably referring, because it means crystal clear, most likely refers to a diamond. By the way, we... John is trying to describe the indescribable. Do you understand how... Do you ever try to describe the indescribable? Well, most of us don't have to because we're in a finite world. Uh, my son, Cody, was telling me how that the human eye can only see of the spectrum of light this much. We only see this much. Now think about a perfected body. Maybe I told you this last week. I always find this interesting. But can you imagine a perfected body where you can see the entire light spectrum? You know, um, we, we, we have uh, images, a lot of images of God, but, but someday we'll have a, a fuller understanding. Yeah, we are so small, so finite. So he's just saying Jasper and Sardis and a Sardis. By the way, the Sardis stone was blood red. It was blood red ruby. An appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, an appearance like an emerald. And I, I don't want to get into all this because we will never have time. But the idea is it's just dazzling. Okay? Rainbow. 
the spectrum, just the brilliance, you know. So you have the throne, you have the one being worshipped at this moment is God the Father, and now we have the worshippers. Verse 4, around the thrones were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their, he- on their heads. And you have to ask, now who are these 24 elders? Who are the 24 elders? Are they angels? Are they the nation of Israel? Are they tribulation saints? Are they possibly the church? Who are the 24 elders? Could you see them throughout the Revelation? Well, we got some hints here. First of all, they're sitting. They sat. Again, which indicates that they were reigning with God. By the way, nowhere in the Bible are angels seen as sitting on thrones. You never see an angel sitting on a throne or ruling or reigning. In fact, Hebrews says they are ministering spirits. You start, got it, you start saying, okay, so these, these 24 elders apparently maybe aren't angels, are not angels. Then they are called elders. Elders in, is never used in Scripture to refer to angels, but always then. And by the way, they're called elders, maturity, and just the word itself, angels are never uh, seen as growing older. So you kind of get these, oh, wait a second, th- these aren't angels. And then you got white robes. Again, that's, I think, reminiscent of Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer at salvation. They stand in righteousness. In fact, uh, Sardis, the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, If you overcome, I'm going to clothe you with white garments. If you overcome as a believer, by the way, believers overcome, I'm going to, I'm going to clothe you with white garments. So... Believers are told that they have white robes. And then finally, the crown of gold. Crowns of gold. The Bible never says crowns are promised to angels. And this is uh, Stephanos. This is the crown of the victor. This is the victor crown. These crowns that are going to be thrown at the feet of God are the victor's crown. So I, I would say this. If you put all those things together, these 24 elders are not being represented, are not angels. Okay? They're not angels. Now, if they're not angels, then could it be that they're the tribulation saints? Or could it be that they are Israel as a nation? Because we know that Israel as a nation, ultimately, according to Romans 11, verse 30, are going to be saved. It says all Israel will be saved. What do you mean all Israel will be saved? They're a pagan nation at the moment. Well, yeah, but after all the tribulation and after all the death and destruction and after all the onslaught of the Antichrist and the devil going against Israel, in the very final moment of the tribulation, at the very end, every Jew that is left will turn to the Savior. There will finally be one nation in Israel that is all obedient to the Savior. Now, that might be from 12 million down to 200,000 people, but the point is there will all be a mass turning to Christ when he comes back. So could that be the 24 elders? Well, let's just think of it chronologically. This is chapter 4 and 5. Uh, the tribulation and the tribulation saints don't come along until chapter 6. And actually, Israel doesn't get saved until even farther along in the book. So chronologically, you would have to say this of the 24 elders. They're not angels. They're not the tribulation saints. And they're not uh, Israel's nation. And you say, well, who, is it, could, who could it be? 
I believe it's this. I think the only possibility is that this is a represented group of the raptured, glorified, as one man said, coronated church. It's, it's the church. It's the redeemed. This is who the 24 elders are, the redeemed. This is us. By the way, 24, is that a complete number? Is it only 24? Well, we find out later on it's a myriad upon myriad. The point is, is that this is, this is the church. The church is in heaven. In fact, that's why uh, Jesus tells John, write these things down. Well, we come to a second group here. Not only 24 elders, but the four living creatures. Again, remember, often John is seeking to describe the indescribable. Because <laughs> when you start reading this, you're like, whoa. Um, verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. That's usually used of a association with God's power. And like in the Old Testament, you'll read that, like in Ezekiel. Lightnings and thunderings and voices. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are seven spirits of God. You want to kind of a, a counter-reference it. Or, um, um, it's uh, Isaiah 11, verse 4, I think it is. The seven spirits. I think referring to the Holy Spirit. Verse, By the way, seven being complete. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst... What do you mean midst? In the inner circle of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. These are living ones. You know, living. They're living. Opposite than dead. Uh, Probably cherubim or seraphim. (laughs) We're going to look at Isaiah 6 in a moment. Um, MacArthur said this, and again, it's either cherubim or seraphim, but it's an exalted order of angels frequently associated in Scripture with God's holy power. The point is the the living ones are angels. I believe these are a higher order of angels. I say that because we've already eliminated some of the other things that couldn't be. And and up to this point, you say, well, I'm not really convinced that everything you're saying. Well, just kind of stay with me. Because the main point is not even that. The main point is what's happening in heaven. If we ever get to Revelation, if we ever get to the studying the book, we'll take four weeks to go through this. But I just want you to get kind of a glimpse. Wait a second, we're here and what's going to happen? And look at, look at the power of God. Look at the worship. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now again, the full of eyes would have the idea of, of awareness or alertness or comprehending. In other words, they understand... What's going on here? The worship of the Almighty. By the way, we as Christians sometimes don't have eyes to see, do we? We're going through life. We're thinking that the most important thing is my little problem, my little situation, my little kingdom. And God says, hey, I'm high and lifted up. Get your, get your blinders off. Get the scales off your eyes. Because then you can worship me. And by the way, if you want a blessed life, you're walking with Jesus, right? So again, they have, uh, if you go to, uh, let's just read this passage first. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. You're going to see really, uh, again, uh, I read verse 1, but let's look at all all three verses. It says in verse 1, Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord uh, sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his uh, robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraph. So that's why I say, some say it's cherubim. I think it, it says right here, seraphim. Each one had, maybe they're the same, by the way. I didn't really do much research on the angel. Uh, each one had six wings. What did they do with the six wings? 
With two, he covered his face. You know, humility. Uh, with two, he covered his uh, feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Same that you see in Revelation chapter 4. And, and really what you're going to see in chapter 4 is a hymn of creation. In chapter 5, you're going to see a hymn of redemption. You're going to see, and you're going to see it in uh, two parts each. So you're going to actually see uh, four times, <laughs> four times that the, the angels and the seraph and the cherubim and the uh, redeemed are worshiping God. Okay, we're going to see how this all plays together. And look at the first. This is really a hymn of, of creation. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, holy. Again, that's verse 8. They don't rest. They just keep saying holy. And, you, and um, you know, when it comes to holy, that's a, that's a very unique attribute of God. It's the only attribute that is mentioned three times sequentially. In other words, you never find God's attribute of love, love, love. God's righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. But you do find it uh, a number of times. Holy, holy, holy. James Boyce wrote this. In its most fundamental sense, holy is not an ethical concept at all. Rather, it means that which is of the very nature of God and which therefore distinguishes him from any everything else. It is what sets God apart from his creation. It has to do with his transcendence. In other words, it has to do with the other. That's really what, that's what the, um, um, the angels are proclaiming. Holy, holy, holy. You're the other. We're limited. You're unlimited. We're, well, not the angels, but we would say this. We are impure. You are completely pure. We could not create anything. You created all things. We could not redeem ourselves. You redeemed us. You're the other. That's what he's getting at when he's saying that holy, holy, holy. Holiness is therefore perhaps the most comprehensive of all of God's attributes. It's like the attribute of all attributes. So what, so what are the angels? See, we can learn about worship right here. We are gonna, when we come together for worship Sunday morning, what are we going to be proclaiming? His holiness. You're, you're God and I'm not. You're perfect and I am not. Look at the second thing. God's power. Lord God Almighty. This term identifies God as the strongest, the most powerful, having no weakness, able to conquer all, even our sin. <laughs> he even controls the universe. And at that moment when he wants, he will let everything burn. But up to that point, it's all in his hands. So again, he's all powerful. We come together worshiping our all-powerful God. Psalms 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. By the way, as believers, we have to be careful that we don't try to get into His way. Sometimes we try to <laughs> usurp His power. We try to protect us, ourselves against things that God may be wanting to do in our life. No, you're the powerful one. Isaiah 46 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient of times, things that are not yet done, saying, 
This is what God says. My counsel shall stand. I'll do all of my pleasure. I'll do what I please. And we see, by the way, this power in creation. Let me give you one verse because, and there's a number of times in Scripture, if you have like a Bible, um, uh, uh, like Bible program, it's easy to look up. But look up the idea of he is able. He is able. It's an interesting study how many times in Scripture it says he is able, like in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that what? Works in us. He's able. What, what do you have right now that you're saying, Lord, I'm not able, but I believe that you are. What temptation or trial or suffering, what situation are you saying, you know, Lord, I'm really growing weak, but you're able. I, I trust that you would run to him because sometimes we try to do it on our own strength. So the angels are worshiping and, and proclaiming his holiness, his power, and then they proclaim his eternity, that he's eternal, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, who lives forever and ever. Remember Nebuchadnezzar after he had his seven years of eating grass? <laughs> yeah, God knows how to humble the proud. <laughs> but he said this, I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. <laughs> yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, fine. come on Nebuchadnezzar, let's get up. <laughs> Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar finally got humbled and he recognized who God really was. That he transcends time. That's what who was and is and is to come refers to. By the way, aren't you glad that God is eternal? Because you know what that means? He is our eternal father. That means as children, he will forever take care of us. There will never be a moment when he's not taking care of us. And the salvation will always be relevant and true. See, it guarantees us, just that statement right there, that our eternal life in heaven will forever be. By the way, that also guarantees this, that those who have never received Christ, their punishment, their torment in hell will always be too. So the, they're worshiping. And what are they worshiping? Three characteristics of God. His holiness, His power, and that He's eternal. And then notice what happens in second, uh, the, verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory, in other words, they stand to give glory, what else is happening? And, and uh, they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever. The 24 elders do something. When I keep reading, because this happens twice. You know, when the living ones worship, worship begets worship. The living creatures rise and they worship. 24 elders worship. Except they're not standing. Look at what happens to them. They prostrate themselves before God. That's humility. They fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. You ever prostrate yourself before God? I hope you do. I've told you, I, when I went to Jamaica a couple years ago, one of the things, this is not prostrating, this is just uh, kneeling, but boy, I tell you what, you want to revitalize your uh, prayer life, sometimes maybe the posture is important. <laughs> I'll just say it that way. Kneel. Prostrate yourself. You are physically saying, Lord, you're God, and I want to worship you. So they fall down and 
prostrate themselves. In uh, Revelation, one, two, three, four, five, six times that's rec- that six times that I just quickly six times it's recorded they prostrate themselves before God. That's how we worship. Now, I'm not I'm not saying in public we need to do this, but what I'm getting at is this. Worship, when you come before God, you know, I heard of the guy, you know, he said, yeah, I saw God, I was shaving and I was shaving and I was just talking to God. That's not how people are seen in Scripture when they see God. You know, I was like a dead man, John says. But here they fall down. By the way, they not only fall down, but they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. By the way, when we talk about worship, we are, it's the old English word, worth-ship. And the idea is that you're giving or proclaiming the worth of someone, in this case, God. So it's not like we're giving him glory and honor and power. We are acknowledging that he is glorious and powerful and uh, have honor. For you created all things, and by your will... Now notice, you created, and I think they said in, uh, you know, who created this world? Well, it was really the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit in Genesis. We see the uh, Son in John chapter 1. We know that God is the one who um, mastermind, as it were. It was His will. You create all things. And notice, by your will, they, they, by your will, not only means it was by your will that it was created, but it was by your will that we exist right now at the moment. Continuing power and we're created. You know, they throw their crowns and you say, where do they get the crowns? Well, I think that was part of the reward. By the way, it doesn't mean that they don't ever have them back. I think this, I believe this, and we're going to be looking at this in the next couple of weeks. I believe that what we do on this earth prepares us for the intensity of how we can worship and serve in heaven. What we do now is critically important. That's what I'm trying to say. Because some people say, well, they threw their crowns and then they're all equal and they go on. No, no. There's an intensity, there's an ability that you gain here by reward because you're faithful here that is going to be used in heaven so that we might worship more fully. In other words, to say it this way, will there be some people worshiping more fully and more... I don't know how, like I said, describe the indescribable. I believe this, what the, and I believe this according to Matthew 25, that there's going to be an ability to worship better, an ability to give back according to faithfulness here. Okay? Or, or if you, think of it this way. Have you ever gone to a party and like you were supposed to bring a gift and either you forgot the gift or you brought the wrong type? Now, again, I'm not saying heaven is a party and you're going to be like left out in the cold, but what I'm getting at, maybe that's a really bad illustration. I, I got it at 5 o'clock this morning. Um, <laughs> the point is, is this. I believe as you're faithful here, God gives you the ability to worship. How do I say more completely? Because you're perfect, but because you have crowns, because you have abilities. By the way, that word worthy was used of a Roman emperor when he marched in a triumphant, or a triumphal process, they call it the triumphant. And here the elders, the uh, represented church, are throwing their rewards before them. They have something to throw before the king of the universe. Because he, through his plan of redemption, has redeemed and judged them and found them worthy. Well, I can see we're almost out of time. So we're going to move from the hymn of creation to the hymn of redemption. That's found in chapter 5.
And this is where we're introduced to Jesus Christ. See, that, chapter 4 is God the Father. Now we have Jesus Christ. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll. By the way, this scroll is not a will. It's a deed. It's a deed to the earth. Remember, we're moving in Revelation to the time when God is going to judge the earth through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a deed or a contract. And it says this, The scroll was written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And basically, there's an angel that proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the, the scroll, and no one's able to be found worthy. And, and John's weeping, and, you know, who is worthy? I wept much. Why? Because John understands the earth is a terrible state. It's, it's succumbed to sin. It needs to be destroyed and, and changed. And here's the Israel and all the different things that are going to happen, and someone's got to do the rescuing here. And so... Verse 5, but one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's definitely Jesus Christ, has prevailed to open the scroll. Why? Because he's worthy. Why is he worthy? Because verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him. By him was nothing made that was made. He's the creator. But not only that, he's the redeemer. He's, re- he's worthy. He, was, he, uh, he did the will of the Father. And you say, well, I'm not sure, but well, look at the description. He stood as a lamb. By the way, he, he wasn't sitting. He stood. Why? Because I think that shows that he's alive. Our Lord is alive. Next time you hear again a person swear, and the Lord, hey, he's alive. And he just heard that. As, as though he had been slain. In other words, as though he had been slain, his scars are clearly visibly seen. And having seven horns, by the way, don't picture him seven horns, seven eyes. Seven is the word of completion. Horns have to do with power and strength. In other words, he has absolute power. Eyes, what do you mean? Well, absolute omniscience. Which are the seven spirits. I think that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit represented again. 11, Isaiah 11, 1, sent out into all the earth. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, again the angels, the cherub, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Boy, what do we do in heaven? (laughs) I wonder what we're going to be doing in heaven. And notice this. uh, Fell down before the Lamb. Each uh, one very good uh, uh, theologian said this. The word each, because of the grammatical, grammatical structure, most likely points back only to the 24 elders. Okay? By the way, as you read, I think it definitely does. Having a harp, that's Old Testament worship, and a golden bowl of incense, we find that in the tabernacle and the temple, which are the prayers of the saints. By the way, they are worshiping the Lamb. Now notice this. They offer the same worship to Christ as they did to the Father. That's convincing proof of His deity. And they sang, look at this, a new song. What do you mean a new song? Well, they've been singing the song of creation. Holy, powerful, your was, is, and is to come. But now we sing a new song. This is a song of redemption. And this is what they say. Again, I think this is the, the church. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain and have been redeemed, what? For, what is the word? Us. See, they're looking and saying, you redeemed us. 
When we're in heaven, we're going to keep praising God for his greatness and his glory, but we're going to keep praising God for our redemption. For us to God, by, our, uh, by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, every language and race and culture. And yet you say, but some cultures never received the truth and they died and they're no longer. Can you find a Hittite? Zebusite? Can you find any of those ites out there? They're gone. And yet it says there's going to be representation in heaven for, those, for that Hittite. How can that be? Babies who die. Because babies who die go to heaven and they'll be represented there. Verse 10, and have made us, have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And the same thing is said in chapter 1, verse 6 of Revelation and chapter 20, verse 6 of Revelation that they shall be priests of God. So they're, this is, a, this is a, a hymn of redemption. Now, now notice what happens now. I believe those are the elders that are, you know, this is the church proclaiming worship. And now, just like the last time, worship begets worship. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. So now he brings everybody in, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And so now everybody, I think it was just them and then everyone. By the way, that's how it should be. You, sometimes we walk in church, you know, you've been rushing and, you know, man, you know, what is going to happen later on, you know, and... I would hope this. You sit down and now you start singing and you know what? Well, they're singing and they're worshiping and and it should just bring us all together to worship together. There's a dynamic that happens on Sunday morning corporate that you cannot get personally. So they're just worshiping and worshiping and worshiping and this is the fourth stanza through. Okay, we've had, this is the fourth time through. And every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth, such as in the sea and all that is in them, I heard blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Notice the distinction, like Ken was saying, Father, Son, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Both being worshipped. And then verse 14. By the way, Psalms 150, verse 6, the very last verse of Psalms 150 says this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And in verse 14, then the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. What do you mean, Amen? Let it be. Let it happen. Let it happen that, because that's why, that's why all was created in the first place is to worship. Let it be. And what did they do? And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So fifth time around. Just like they worship and then they let it be. By the way, I imagine this. There now, oh Lord, why don't you come? Look at the, the rebellion on that little planet called earth. Why don't you let it be? Because you're the Holy One. You're the Creator. Jesus, you're the Redeemer. Let it be. Is that what your heart says? Let it be. Amen. I want to worship the Lord. Do you want to worship the Lord? I want to worship the Lord right now. Let's worship the Lord. Let me just close with a couple applications. 
One is, I trust that you're training your mind to cherish and yearn for heaven. Uh, one man said this, to be honest with you, I don't even know who wrote it, because I've lost the uh, initials that usually tells me who, but it's a very penetrating commentary on where we should be as far as our view of heaven. He says, our longing for heaven should be intense. It is irrational to find our joy and comfort in this life because that is idolizing a sin-filled, decaying world and contradicting God's goal, which is to make us like Christ in heaven. If we want to cling to this world and its comforts and accumulate our treasure here, we are irrational and sinful. Furthermore, by seeking what will never satisfy, we are aggravating our misery. It's reasonable to struggle with pain and suffering and death. That's reasonable. God has built that reaction into us. But it's unreasonable and even sinful to fear the result of death. I'm not longing to die, but I am longing for what death brings. We should desire heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like the hungry and thirsty long for food and water. If we don't, something is wrong. We should be saying with the Apostle John, Come, Lord Jesus. I trust that you're yearning for heaven. And one of the ways to do that is to worship. And so the second application is this. Apply yourself to worship. Well, give me an outline. Now we don't have time. I'll give you one verse. You might be able to remember it. It's the one I started with, and I'm going to finish with. Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And boy, isn't that an outline? Thank you, Lord. You're praying. Let me worship the Lord. How? Well, you're worthy. Boy, that's a great rabbit trail. All the ways he's worthy. See, you can go right down through this thing. Is the Lamb. He's the Lamb. He was your Lamb. He was the one... God, man, who came to this earth, allowed himself to be the sacrifice for you so that your sins were placed on him. He paid the penalty for you. That's a great rabbit trail. Who was slain to receive power, and you can, all the different things, how he's powerful. And riches, and all that spiritual, and and all that he has. And wisdom, and strength, and honor. And boy, that's, apply yourself to worship. Lord, I'm even going to get down on my knees. No, Lord, I'm even going to prostrate myself before you because, yeah, I don't want this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But Lord, I want to set my heart on heaven. And therefore, one of the keys is this, that you worship the God of heaven. <laughs> Can't set your heart there if you're not worshiping. Just that simple. So you've got to do that. I'll throw in one last. But you say I'm not even part of the family. What does John 1.12 said? But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice, to them he gave what? The right to become what? Children of God. To those who believe on his name. If you never have put your faith and trust and hope and reliance on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone as the only Savior, God-man, the only Savior, you can do that right now. Cry out to him as a beggar begs, as it were, and ask him to forgive because he has 
all your sins. Ask him to forgive you based on his sacrifice on the cross, and he will. You can receive him today. And he will be your Savior, your Lord, and bring you into his family. Don't we serve a great God? Don't we have so much to be thankful for, to worship him? I trust that you will. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this reminder. It's a reminder that's over and over and over again in Revelation 4 and 5. Forgive us for so often focusing our attention on this earth. Help us to set our affections on things above. Help us to seek you and your Son and the Spirit and all that you're doing in our lives. Father, again, help us to apply worship to our lives, to spend the time needed to worship you. We know it's hard. Everything pulls against that. And yet may that truly be a priority in our life. Father, again, thank you for all that you're doing in each one of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.